0: Just a small content warning this week, and for the next couple of weeks, there are some adult themes. Nothing explicit, but please check out the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week, on Myths and Legends, it's the story of Tristan, Isolde, and King Mark from the Arthurian Legends. We'll see why shoving poisonous dragon parts down your pants is a bad idea, and how getting hair in your food might just spark a quest for the love of your life. The creature this week is a giant angry snail, and if you're thinking, oh, they're super slow, so they're really not that scary, I have two words for you, mouth tentacles. This is Myths and Legends, episode 135A, Matchmaker. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen Today's story is a super famous one from the Arthurian legends. If you haven't heard many or any of the previous King Arthur stories, that's okay. This story is set in the same time as the other stories we've told, and King Arthur, Gawain, and Yvain will all make cameo appearances later, but it's largely disconnected from the larger narrative. Today's story comes almost exclusively from a poet in 12th century France, by the name of Barul. This is just about the earliest version of the story, though we might bring in more recent versions more recent versions being ones written in the 1300s, as opposed to the 1100s, later on in the story. Basically, today we start our story in Cornwall, in southwest Britain, and we'll spend a lot of time in Tintagel, where King Mark, the king of Cornwall, has a big problem with an even bigger knight. Tristan looked on his opponent, the Irish Prince Morholt, as he rode to the island. Yeah, wow. There was a reason no one had taken him up on his offer for single combat for at least a decade or so. They've been sending the Irish king a steady tribute of young men and women each year, all to be slaves in Ireland, because no one was brave enough to face him one on one. Tristan gritted his teeth beneath his helmet. Whatever the outcome, that changed today. Morholt came to stand over Tristan, as he stepped off his boat. Then the Cornish knight paused. He looked on Morholt, and then back to his boat, and kicked the boat off into the water, letting it drift, without tying it up. Why do you do that? Morholt managed, from under his thick helmet. Only one of us will need a boat, when this is over, Tristan said, and brushed past his adversary, on the way to the battlefield. Tristan's name means tumult or outcry, and his story was a tragically common one. We don't have great statistics, but in medieval Europe, the maternal mortality rate could have been as high as 10 or 20%. Tristan's mother had fallen into the statistic. She died during childbirth, and her son carried a reminder of that tragedy for as long as he lived. While Tristan's father, the King of Linus, was off fighting Arthur's Wars, which was basically all the time now, Tristan studied under the care of his tutor, Governor, Soon, the young man grew bored. He was an only child, whose only real companion was his middle-aged tutor. So when he came of age, Tristan packed a bag, a sword, and gave Governal a choice. Come with him as he sought adventure in other lands, or stay back and be fired. Maybe killed, for letting the king's son do something stupidly dangerous. Governal sighed, and with a slump, went to find his toothbrush. Two weeks later, Tristan and Governal emerged from the forest, and there, nestled among the cliffs, stood a castle. It was Tintagel. Governor announced that he had found his way to Cornwall, the domain of his uncle, King Mark. Tristan resolved to go say hello, but before Governor got too happy about a bed and all the honors afforded to someone so high-ranking in the household of the king's brother-in-law, Tristan announced that he would enter the service of the king and try for knighthood, but he wanted to earn it. He would keep his name and lineage a secret. Governor would do the same, Governor threw up his hands. There were a lot of things that weren't cool about the medieval world. Like, all the things about the medieval world. But legal nepotism when you're the direct beneficiary of nepotism? Seriously. Tristan's mom was dead and his dad basically abandoned him. Just take the win. But Tristan refused and cute a montage starting with him walking into the dingy barracks and culminating with his kneel before King Mark at his knighting ceremony. On that day, Tristan, and pretty much everyone else, couldn't help but notice that King Mark, well, King Mark was kind of down. Like Aegeus, he wasn't exactly thrilled about having to give up a handful of young men and women to some royal who would come from beyond the sea. You see, a few years back, the Irish had invaded and offered the nobles of Cornwall a deal, fight their champion, or give some kids as slaves each year. Since it was easier to groan publicly about the injustice of the invaders than it was to step up and, you know, fight the invaders, none of the nobles nor King Mark himself fought them, and yet all pretended like it was the super sad thing to give up children every year as slaves, despite agreeing to do exactly that for their own safety. It was on this day, years later, that Tristan was knighted by the still very publicly sad king. In fact, Tristan's ceremony was nearly interrupted by the messenger coming from the Irish royal, Morholt, who had just landed in the port of Tintagel. So confident in the cowardice of the nobles, Morholt had left the deal open, they could stop the tribute of young slaves at any time. They only needed to challenge him. Still, King Mark continued to avoid conflict, announcing instead that it was again time for the annual lottery. Tristan stood, stopping the king just before he put out the proclamation. He, he thought these were the Arthurian legends, where brave and chivalrous knights stood up for the common person against the evils of the world. King Mark looked this fresh knight up and down and laughed. Then the nobles laughed. And when the courtier saw the king and the nobles laughing, they, too, laughed. Wiping his eyes, the king nodded. That was a good one. All right, let's decide which kids are going to die so we can keep being scared. Tristan raised his hand. He, he would fight Morholt. Slowly, all the smiles in the room faded until the messenger from Morholt chimed in just before the king spoke again. The brave knight was indeed brave, but Morholt refused to fight someone of lesser birth than him. Tristan rubbed his face and nodded. Huh, well, plot twist, Morholt was a prince, right? So was Tristan. He was the son of the King of Lioness and a prince himself. King Mark was about to question the young man when Governor emerged from the crowd, announcing that he was one of the King of Lioness's own advisors and the tutor for young Tristan. He gave a small wave, affirming that, yes, this was Tristan and no, he did not approve of any of this and stepped back into the crowd. King Mark turned back to the young knight but he was already making an agreement with a messenger from Morholt. They would fight at dawn in one week's time. And, in one week's time, we arrived at the scene at the top of the episode. Tristan was rowing up to the island. He kicked the boat away and delivered his fairly epic-sounding observation, despite nearly shaking with fear. They would need only one boat after this fight. Tristan had been preparing for this encounter every day for the entire week. He thought about it every way it could go, and taking advice from the best in Cornwall about how to battle this man. He was young and strong and, true, he had never really been in a fight, but there was still hope. Morehold, however, was the complete opposite. He killed more men than he could count. And that wasn't just because he skipped his math lessons to learn more about chopping guys in half. Ten years ago, when he started all this business, harassing kings on the western coast of Great Britain, he never imagined himself losing a challenge, much less hemorrhaging blood from his head after a single hit from his opponent, someone who was just barely a man. Tristan had been lucky, hitting Moreholt so hard in the head that the sword sliced straight through Moreholt's helmet, lodging a piece of the blade in his skull. It turned out that Tristan was wrong. They would need more than one boat. Seeing that Moreholt didn't have much time, Tristan, the unlucky victor, granted him mercy to die in peace. That is, as peaceful as shrieking through tears as you slowly bleed to death from the face could be. Moreholt's attendants rushed him away, and Tristan was left there gripping his side. It was a wound, but it was his only wound from a fight that his family had feared for years. When at last his uncle's men arrived with a boat of their own, young Tristan returned to a week-long celebration. Their nightmare was over. Tristan had won. A week later, Governor, Tristan's old tutor, entered the boys' room and nearly vomited. The team was still asleep, but wow, the room stank. He rushed to throw open the window, to bring in some air, and Governor saw it. The blood and pus staining the boy's sheets. Something was wrong. Later that day, Tristan awoke in the infirmary. The doctor nearby wouldn't meet his eye. Neither would the king. It was Governor who finally told him. It was poison. Morhold evidently had a poison-tipped spear when he made it through Tristan's armor and grazed his side that would be enough to kill anyone. He had hours or days, but it was certain the young man was going to die. Tristan looked down at the growing rod on his side, at the gray skin oozing blood and pus. They were right. He took a painful breath and asked for some time alone. Everyone but Governor happily agreed to exit the awful-smelling room, but with a little persuasion, Governor also left. He would be back in an hour to check on the young man. But when Governor returned, Tristan was gone. Tristan coughed, and blood sprayed on the side of the rowboat. He rested against the side and prayed, watching Tintagel shrink on the horizon. He prayed again and again pleading that God would guide him to a place where he would be healed. The prince sighed as he curled up in a boat without sails or oars, gripping a harp that he had brought along. If God chose not to cure him, at least he wouldn't linger, holding on to a life he knew was doomed. The Cornish healers couldn't help him. They had told him as much, but maybe there was some place that could. It wasn't much later that the young prince began to think that, perhaps he made a huge mistake. He'd fallen asleep in the boat, and came to just as the boat scraped the sands of Ireland. Unable to sit up, Tristan stayed there, beached on the shoreline, plucking his harp. He sang until his voice gave out, and as his eyes grew heavy, he closed them for the final time, never expecting to open them again. <laughs> They did open again. He was dead, he was sure of it, because there, looking straight into his eyes, was the face of an angel. A beautiful young girl hovered nearby, staring him in the face. From her lips came a soft sound that said, Don't move, you idiot, what are you doing? Instinctively, Tristan immediately tried to sit up and look around the room. It was painful, and he really shouldn't have. But in doing so, he realized that he wasn't in heaven. He was, oh no. Tristan was in Ireland and the Irish king barreled across the room and was now standing over him. In sweet tones, the king asked the young woman to please leave him with the patient. The king took his seat next to Tristan. It was then that the young prince realized that it was easier to breathe and talk than when he had passed out in his boat. If Tristan's estimation was correct, and it was, then they were in Morholt's kingdom. And this was the king. This was Moreholt's brother. Tantris, Tristan introduced himself. Yeah, he was a minstrel from a merchant ship attacked by pirates. I know, right? Pirates, like, geez, get it together, King Arthur. Get those pirates off your coast. The king laughed and patted Tristan on his good shoulder. He was happy to help a traveler in need. His daughter, Isold, was a skilled healer. Maybe the most skilled healer in the world. She would fix Tristan up and have him on his way. Lord knows they all needed a distraction after the death of her uncle to one of Arthur's petty kings. Turning slightly, the king called his daughter, Isold, back into the room. For the next week, Tristan stayed in the infirmary. The whole time, Isold wouldn't meet his gaze. Being the best healer in the world, she knew where the wound on Tristan's side had come from. She had healed it before. In fact, she was the only one who could heal it. She always thought it was stupid of her uncle to venture east, just to squeeze the cowardly kings of the coast. It really was only a matter of time before he came back with a piece of sword in his head. It was no secret that Isold wasn't like her mother, who had the embalmer pry that bit of sword out of Morholt's head, as a keepsake to remember him by. Isold didn't mourn her uncle, and she wouldn't get in the middle of whatever was going on here. The sooner this guy was out of her infirmary, the better. And so, after a week's time when he was good enough to sail, Tristan not really wanting to push his luck, lying helpless in the kingdom of the man he had just killed, limped to the ship on some pretense about needing to cross the sea to the company that had hired him. The host king paid his way on a merchant ship, and Tristan left the following morning, arriving home with news that he had been miraculously healed by God. With mouths gape, King Mark and Governal, and really just those two guys, rejoiced. You see, King Mark was in his late thirties, and even though he was king, he had neither married nor fathered children, His 20s had been consumed by keeping the throne during the wars, and after Arthur rose to the position of High King, more wars followed. Love, and more specifically, women, were never really that important to him. Despite begging on behalf of the nobles that, if he died with no heirs, ruling over the most important port of southwest Britain presented a massive power vacuum, King Mark resisted their pleading and clumsy matchmaking. They were in a time of peace. Come on, he argued. Then, Tristan came along, Cornwall and Tintagel was many times the size of Tristan's father's kingdom and King Mark knew he only had to ask and Tristan would be his heir. The attractive young man could carry the kingdom into the future and King Mark's anxiety over marriage could finally be put to rest. Then, Tristan had died or so everyone believed when he escaped from his bedroom, a trail of blood leading to the boat dock. Like clockwork, the three barons started in with their demands once again that the king fulfill his duty to his station and his people and marry. That's when King Mark saw the hair, and no, not air, hair. One long, golden hair drifted down before his eyes, as he walked outside to a chorus of barons and other nobles, suggesting various beautiful young women. He snatched the hair from the air in front of him, and looked up to see a swallow, flying off beyond the courtyard. The bird had obviously carried a single hair in his beak, or used it in conjunction with another swallow to carry a coconut, and King Mark shook his head. He wouldn't marry any of the women the nobles suggested. This would be his wife. The barons looked to one another and then back to Mark. The, the hair would be his wife? King Mark groaned. No, the woman previously attached to the hair. It was beautiful and strong. The barons stopped in their tracks. It, that, that was impossible. The king knew that, right? Like, to find the owner of one hair in the entire world? Grinning, the king gently placed the hair in his pocket and shrugged. It was obviously a signal from God, so there will be a reward to whoever brought King Mark the woman that possessed this hair. They should get on it, too. A quest like this could take years. The barons nodded vigorously. Okay, okay, please just meet any of the available young women who wanted to marry him, maybe, in the meantime? Maybe the hair falling to the ground in front of him hadn't been a sign from God, but had been, you know, a hair falling to the ground in front of him? The king waved them all away. No, no he wouldn't be meeting any of the young women they suggested. He couldn't imagine wanting to marry them anyway. When Tristan returned, fully healed, he learned of the quest, and his uncle met him privately, telling him that if no one found the maiden with the golden hair, then Tristan would have to be declared his heir. Wink, wink. Tristan, however, the honorable knight, stood facing a crisis of conscience. If he kept his mouth shut, he would be king. But was that the right thing to do? but there was more. So great was Tristan's crisis because, well, he had seen this hair before. A lot of them actually, on the head of Isold, the daughter of the King of Ireland, as she healed his broken side a few weeks ago. But Tristan failed to see his uncle's wink or pick up on the fact that his uncle didn't want to marry. King Mark wanted to give Cornwall to Tristan, but Tristan's honor demanded that he see this quest through. If he could do the right thing and bring Isold back with him, then his conscience would be clean. And so, despite King Mark's insistence that, no, he didn't really need to leave again on another quest, Tristan boarded the first ship west. It turned out, the small kingdom in Ireland was having a rough month. First, they lost their champion and prince, Morholt, some kid across the sea. Then there had been the dragon. The dragon appeared a week or so after Tantris, AKA Tristan, left, and because dragons were shockingly uncreative, it just ravaged the countryside, spewing poison everywhere, blah, blah, blah. When Tristan reached the shoreline, he couldn't believe his eyes. The ship had clearly been blown off course and they'd arrived at a northern port. But that wasn't the surprise. All along the coast, the village's former inhabitants littered the shore, the streets, the fields, all were poisoned. All oh, were dead. Knight Code deemed slaying dragons above playing matchmaker for his uncle, and Tristan was ready. Lowering his helmet, the young prince asked his servants to ready his horse, and he went to work. <music> Tristan winced, gasping for his first breath in nearly two minutes. He breathed deeply through the cloth wrapped tightly around his nose and mouth. The dragon was dead. It was never a question of if, but how fast he could kill the dragon, Tristan told himself. The dragon was dead and the poison had already cleared, so Tristan looked down. This was a positive. Doing it for honor was well and good, but he also wanted the credit, because surely someone somewhere wanted something for this thing's head. He looked back toward the shore and bit his lip. Huh, couldn't even see the shore from here definitely couldn't drag a dragon or even a dragon's head back to the boat. He snapped his fingers. He knew what to do. He took his sword, pried open the dragon's mouth, and holding the forked tongue aloft, hacked at the base of it until it came free. It was massive, nearly the size of his calf. And this way, he would be able to prove that he was here first, should someone run off with the head while he was getting his men. He looked at his horse, barely outfitted with anything since he had taken off so quickly. Huh, huh, He didn't want to hold the slimy, green, bloody thing that was nearly as big as his calf all the way back to the boat. What to do, what to do. Ah! He snapped his fingers again, and started removing the armor of his leg. The thing was the size of his calf, so he'd just shove it into his stockings. Or his pants. Um, so, if you're thinking of shoving a severed, poisonous dragon's tongue down your pants, don't, because while that might not be attached to a dragon, it was still very potent. Tristan realized his mistake as the darkness began to creep in from the edges of his vision. Before he had the presence of mind to get that tongue out of his pants, it was too late. He passed out in the bush next to the dragon. A few hours later, in that same spot, the Irish king's seneschal, or his right-hand man, was riding along by himself. He was wary, I mean, he was kind of always wary, because he was smart. He was smart enough to know that, traveling through the countryside in early medieval Ireland, You were liable to run into bandits, highwaymen, two nations fighting over bull ownership, or the most terrifying at the moment, dragons. There was a dragon on the loose, who arrived mere weeks after the only man who could have killed it, Morholt, came back dead from Britain. The king, really not thrilled about the dragon ravaging his villages, had played the only chip he had, marriage to his daughter, for anyone who killed the dragon. Now, the Seneschal might be one of the smartest men in the kingdom, but that didn't also mean he couldn't be creepy. He had known Isold, the princess, since she was a baby, so of course he lusted after her and wanted to marry her, despite being like three times her age. When he saw the dragon collapsed on the road, he shrieked and started to turn the horse around, but then he noticed that the dragon wasn't moving. At first, he thought it was sleeping, but then he noticed that it wasn't even breathing. He urged his horse over to the beast, noting the dry blood around his chest and mouth, as well as the dead knight lying in the bushes. The seneschal walked over and nudged the unconscious Tristan with his boot. Yep, he was dead. Well, better not let this thing go to waste. It took nearly two hours of sawing with Tristan's sword, but he finally cut off the beast's head and after a quick ride to the nearby destroyed village, he found some rope to lash the head on his horse. He replaced the sword, thanked the brave knight, and rode for home. When he arrived there, the king couldn't believe it. The court couldn't believe it, and Isol didn't want to believe it. Ever since she had reached a certain age, the Seneschal had become very attentive. He was a coward, of course, and if she ever called him on his glances, he would run away flustered, but if she was married to him, her life would be his. She couldn't have that. With smiles, she sidled up next to her husband be asking details of the battle that the brave man fought. They were sparse, but she was able to piece together the location from what he provided. She smiled at her husband-to-be, excused herself, and moments later she was riding out with her attendants to find the corpse of the dragon. When they arrived, they found the headless dragon and the confirmation of Isolde's suspicions about Tantris. The minstrel she spent a week healing. He was laying in a bush, armor covered in blood and poison, and he was still breathing, slightly. He was still alive. Several of the women threw him over his horse, which was tied up a short distance away, and led him back to the castle you had a tongue in your pants was the first thing Tristan heard as he woke up nearly naked being scrubbed by a team of young women sure that this must be heaven he looked at the speaker and saw Isolde oh it's you Tristan said he wasn't in heaven bummer then he felt the sword on his neck What was this? Tristan became more serious. It was his sword. Now get it out of his face, please. No, Isold said. What is this? She directed Tristan look at the part of the sword with a notch taken out of it. She had seen that notch before. Her mother had a similarly shaped piece of metal removed from her uncle's head in the event that they ever saw a sword like this. Tristan threw up his hands. He was Tristan, nephew to King Mark of Cornwall he killed Morholt in fair combat. She put the cold iron back on his neck. Apparently, Isol didn't care about Morholt. She cared about what Tristan could do for her. There was a competition for her hand, one that Tristan had already won. If she let him live, he would go to the king, present the tongue, and claim her hand. Tristan grimaced, Ah, uh, he couldn't do that. With the sword still pressed on his neck, he explained that the whole reason he had come back to Ireland was to seek her hand, but not for himself. For his uncle, the King of Cornwall. If he did claim her hand, it would be on behalf of King Mark. Isolde lowered the sword. That was it? Okay, whatever. Sure, she figured she'd have to marry some king somewhere anyway. Why not Mark? It didn't matter to her as long as she didn't have to marry this creepy seneschal that could be her grandfather. Now get dressed. It was time to appear before the king, and claim his prize. Waves danced, the sun stood brightly in the sky, and Tristan sat on the deck of the ship with Isolde. It was hot, and they were stuck. They had left Ireland the previous day, after a week's worth of celebration for the new peace between the kingdoms. Tristan revealed that he was not only the slayer of the dragon, but King Mark's nephew, and Tristan had been sent on a quest from God for Isold's hand in marriage. The king saw an opportunity to unite his kingdom, with the one that controlled the most powerful port across the sea, smoothing over years of hostility, and he immediately agreed to the union. The queen, however, was a bit more reserved. The marriage was happening, she couldn't do anything about that, but Isold's mother feared for her daughter, Morholt had killed and kidnapped people from the Cornish kingdoms for years. She didn't know what type of man King Mark was, and if he would take out his frustration with the Irish on his new wife. She needed to ensure that the man who married Isold left her with a deep, passionate, abiding love, and that was something that she could control. The Queen had excused herself from all celebrations, instead sticking to her quarters, where she concocted a wine, a special wine that ensured when Isold and the king drank it at their wedding night, they would fall in love with each other. The potion only lasted three years, but by that time, hopefully it would have taken hold enough to make the feelings permanent. The potion was given to Brangain, Isold's lady-in-waiting, with strict instructions to give it to Isold and her husband on their wedding night. And Brangain was the same maid who stood beside their chess game below deck, shielded from the sun on the windless day that left them temporarily marooned on the sea. Brangain, wine, Tristan called, and Isold rolled her eyes. Brangane wasn't Tristan's servant. He couldn't bark orders at her like that. Then Isold thought about it. She was thirsty too. Some wine would be nice. Brangane, wine. Instinctively, Brangain's hand shot to her belt, to the wineskin that hung there. She was about to hand it to Isold when she stopped herself with a smile. <sighs> Ooh, no. She was supposed to wait for that one. That one was for Isold and her husband on their wedding night. Oh, no. And that's when Isold snatched the wineskin from Brangain's hand, popped it open, and took a long drink before handing it to Tristan. Brangain almost had time to cry out before Tristan squirted the wine in his own mouth. Shaking, Brangain reached for the wineskin as Tristan remarked that it was good. Really good. Where did it come from? He looked over to meet Isold's eyes. Staring at him, The effects of the potion were coming into full force for him, too, and his pulse quickened. Neither said a word. They didn't need to. Both felt it, the magnetic attraction, and both knew. Brangain, leave us, Tristan said, starting to rise from the table. Hands still shaking, Brangain hooked the wineskin back in her belt. Sheepishly, she objected, saying that her mistress... Princess Isolde said that she didn't take orders from Tr leave us, Isolde repeated. Not looking at her lady-in-waiting, an oldest friend, she was starting to stand too. A tear began to fall from Brangain's eyes as she took a couple of steps back into the hallway. She knew she had messed up and pleaded for Isolde to come with her. It would be unseemly for the princess to be alone with- But Isolde had already shut the door. In tears- Brangain heard the chess pieces fly from the table and hit the floor and ran above deck before she heard anything else. Several hours later, the pair emerged disheveled and found Brangain standing at the top of the stairs. Tristan smiled awkwardly and smoothed out his hair. Wow, those were some uh, fun games of chess. He never thought he could play so many games of chess in one day, but apparently they could. Brangain turned to look at Isold, giving her an accusing glance that said she knew what was going on behind that door. But Isold was unfazed. She knew that Brangain knew, and she didn't care. She was in love. Brangain sighed heavily before announcing what she was coming downstairs to announce. The wind had picked up after she left the room and they were nearing Tintagel. Further, King Mark's barons had received a message from the Irish King, and they made preparations. Isol was to marry King Mark, Tristan's uncle, in the morning. Isolde, dropping all pretense, grabbed Tristan's hand. She knew she had said she didn't care who she married, but now she did. She didn't want anyone else but Tristan. Tristan took her face in his hands and promised her that, no matter what happened, they would be together. She would have to get married, but they would have to find a way around the wedding night, because after what just happened, it would be obvious she wasn't a virgin. And then she could be killed. Isol nodded. And then she had an idea. She turned to Brangane. Tomorrow night, the lady-in-waiting would need to do something for her. We'll follow up next week with the wedding that everyone is super excited about and see how Tristan and I soul dig themselves into a deeper hole as a result of the Queen's Love Potion. I want to say thanks to Clover Breeze, Wicked Emu, Dreamcore, Spooner Girl, Rufoy, Braille Book Lover, Shubuzunis, Cisco Z, Tyron Cross, Legend Thief, Zanka 26, Tor Pants, and Clownfish 94 for their reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much for the reviews. It's really nice to read them, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It still helps the show. And if you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Corot from French folklore. This creature is a snail, and it literally means the snail in French. Also, if you speak French... Sorry about my pronunciation. If people are walking around southern France, and find a slime trail the size of a two-lane road, and then decide to follow that slime trail where it leads, as would be a very smart and safe idea, it will lead to a cave, underneath the city of Ostungus. If they then get there, and look up to see a four-story tall, hairy snail moving slowly from the shadows, it would definitely be a good idea to turn around. And, because snails aren't exactly known for their viciousness, or speed, they might think they have a shot. The snail will try, it always does, to get the person without resorting to its mouth tentacles. Maybe it's trying to prove something to itself. Who knows, if I had mouth tentacles, I'd use them for pretty much everything, like folding the laundry, doing taxes. The list of things you can use mouth tentacles for seriously outweighs the list of things you can't use mouth tentacles for. The snail will wait until the person is nearly out of sight and then finally resort to using the mouth tentacles to drag them back and devour them. It's still fast enough to catch someone, it'll lie to itself as it swallows the person. We don't really know how the snail got so big. If it was like flushed on an early modern French toilet and grew up in the sewer like a crocodile or a ninja turtle. But the bigger question, to me at least, where did it get a shell that big? Legend has it that the citizens of that city hid their treasure underground before the Spanish invaded in the 1600s. For some reason, not seeing it coming, that a 40-foot tall snail would take up residence at some point in the future. Don't make the same mistake. Keep that lesson in mind for any long-term planning. If you go into the caves looking for the treasures, don't. There's pretty much no way to kill this thing. And even if you manage to hurt it enough to get it to go inside its shell, it's still just going inside its massive shell to heal and come out angrier and hungrier, take the win and get out of there with your life. Yeah, just leave and go back up to town, trying to sleep with the fact that this thing is, like, less than 50 feet of dirt and stone away from you at all times. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Chris Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.